Section three of On Famine Fever by Rudolf Virchow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. On Famine Fever, Part three. Another pretext rests on the contagious qualities of typhus. They are much exaggerated, though it has been so far proved that typhus and more especially spotted fever can be contagious and that in a very high degree. The assumption that spotted fever spreads by contagion is handy, and this explanation has been freely made use of. In the times of Thucydides, many held the opinion that plague had been brought from Egypt to Athens. Both at the siege of Granada in 1490 and in 1505 in Upper Italy, the report was rife that the plague had come over from Cyprus. In Silesia, the epidemic of 1848 was suppositously derived from Galicia, as now in Ostpreussen they pretend it has come to them from Silesia. In Galicia, again, it was referred back to Poland. The disposition in England to look for the beginnings of every new epidemic in Ireland is so strong that the spotted fever is simply termed Irish fever. An observer, Popham by name, says Typhus pursues the Irishman to whithersoever he may transplant himself and his misery. And in fact, he not only carries the disease again and again across the ocean to the seaports of North America and to the large commercial and manufacturing districts of England and Scotland, but in his own country their filthy dwellings, swarming with inmates and vice, form an abiding harbour and homestead for epidemies from which they are ever ready to issue forth to spread death and desolation all around. Upon such a testimony one would be inclined to believe that spotted fever like cholera, the plague, and the more notable eruptive diseases, smallpox, scarlet fever, measles, with which in so many points it bears a resemblance, were bound to certain homes, certain never-varying centres, from which from time to time it radiates. Were this the sole source of the great epidemies, the chief consideration would naturally then be how to stem the current of contagion by opportunely debarring all intercourse between typhus places and their surrounding neighbourhood. That, however, is far from being the state of matters. In Upper Silesia, where they point to Galicia as the cradle of their calamity, it turned out on closer inquiry that the fever had been hanging about the province to some small extent long before 1848. Further, the disease was not carried beyond a certain territory, even although persons struck with it came as far as Leibniz and Berlin. Breslau, in constant connection with Upper Silesia, remained quite exempt. Not till the year 1856, when the illness assumed a very mild form of epidemic in Upper Silesia, did the spotted fever come to light in Breslau, maintaining ground there for several months. But the experiences of the past are too apt to be forgotten, or perhaps we never get to know them at all. As long as the history of medicine is indebted for its increase to voluntary individual contributions, it will always remain incomplete, because the greater number of medical men withhold their observations. And the government organization of public sanitary measures is, with the exception of a few places, so backward 
that reliable reports on single districts or periods cannot be looked for. Hence the oft-recurring mistake of the malady being regarded as something new, where it has already and repeatedly prevailed. Such is the case with the province of Ostpreußen. Stray reports about the presence of this epidemic in that province go back to the year 1836. In Danzig itself, a slight epidemic prevailed in 1848. It is here as in the Russian Baltic provinces and in Poland from whence accounts drop in at intervals. The narrower we observe and the closer we inquire, the fact of the spotted fever being much more prevalent than is suspected meets greater confirmation. Apart from those public epidemies, as we may term famine and camp fever on account of their claim on the general sympathy and aid, there occur numberless detached cases, so-called sporadic, which are not unfrequently falsely treated, the medical men themselves not possessing adequate experience in that form of suffering. Since 1848, when the eyes of observation have been quickened in Germany, Quite isolated cases or small groups of cases of exanthematic typhus have been described in spots far from the abodes of the chief epidemics. Detached cases were received into the hospitals in Würzburg in 1855 and in Berlin in 1863. A somewhat larger number of cases was brought under observation in Leipzig in the winter of 1853 and 1854, which indeed seemed traceable to the Hartz Forest country and the Erzgebirge. Since the spring of 1867, there has been again a slight epidemic prevailing in Berlin which is not yet extinct. My observations in my department of the Charité Hospital have shown me the disease to be in a very high degree contagious. Many of the patients had obviously brought their maladies with them from other places, having arrived here sick from Stetten, Magdeburg, etc. Others again sickened here, without its being possible to establish the fact of contact with the strangers. They were, for the most part, poor inhabitants from the north of the town, Berlin, the workmen's quarter. About this very time a violent epidemic, though limited in its extent, prevailed in Vorpommern, Pomerania. It took first the roadside laborers, but afterwards spread further. At present the spotted fever is in Vienna. In many of those milder epidemies, the possibility of their being first brought in and spread by neighborly intercourse so as to form groups of cases cannot for the present be gainsaid. Investigations in this direction must for the future be much more exact, as well as the system of interrogating. I may nevertheless here adduce the authority of such medical men as live in the so-called typhus districts, who express it as their conviction that alongside of transmission by contagion, there is an independent, or figuratively speaking, a spontaneous origination of the spotted fever, as in general there is thought to be of the enteric fever. Let us now consider the conditions which favor the development of the typhus fever, or in the strictest sense of the word, the causes of the disease. We must first of all call attention to the fact that through almost every century one fundamental notion has influenced the opinions of both medical and lay observers relative to the nature of typhus diseases, namely, that the human body becomes impregnated with some principle foreign to it, and therefore injurious, 
which principle represents the center point of the malady. The ancients called it miasma, pollution, and the condition of the human body which its reception occasioned infectio, pollution. In the large manual of pathology and therapeutics which I, in conjunction with some eminent clinical authorities in Germany recently published, I restored this conception of the thing by classing them all in the corresponding section under the name of infectious diseases, Infectionskrankheiten. But what is now this impure principle? And whence comes it? It used to be the custom to derive it from a sort of foulness or corruption now in the air, now in the water, or in the food. Hence the term putrid fever, which has so frequently been given as the generic title to the whole group of fevers here treated. The greatest stress was laid on the corruption of the air in this system. Herein a partial attempt is at least observable to discover single new and nearer references between typhus and some widespread diseased conditions of animals and plants. For instance, in Posnania, the simultaneous appearance of the cattle plague was thought of the last importance. This simultaneousness, however, holds good for only certain epidemics, not even for all in Sclavonic countries and not at all for Ireland. More to the point is the question of its affinity with certain diseases in the vegetable kingdom, which of late years have attained to such prominence as the grape disease, or more especially, the potato disease. Botkin, in Petersburg, absolutely contests for the relapsing fever the possibility of its being engendered by the use of diseased potatoes. The history of the potato contains certainly many bearings on the question that here occupies us, but the first great epidemic of the potato disease does not fall till the year 1845, and although we cannot deny that just the great scarcity of the years 1846 through 48, and conditioned by it, the outbreaks of famine fever were to a very considerable extent occasioned by the failure and disease of the potato, still this does not hold good for all epidemies of spotted fever since 1845, and at all events, not for those before 1845. Nay, the spotted fever existed in Europe before a potato at all was to be seen on this side of the ocean. The first potatoes were introduced into Spain in 1565 by Hawkins from South America, from whence they found their way into Italy in 1580. Here they received the name of tartofi or tartofuli, from which our German word kartoffel is said to be derived. Their introduction into England was without any reference to the above. Sir Walter Raleigh brought seed with him from Virginia in 1584, rearing them on his property Young Hall near Cork. Thus was bestowed on Ireland this root of which it is justly said to have been at once her blessing and her bane. A new importation reached England through Francis Drake in 1585. But a very long time passed before the potato became even a common food. For many years they were merely a dainty for the high-born, and the people so obstinately refused to cultivate them that the government thought it a duty from time to time to use coercion. It is believed the first potatoes in Germany were cultivated in Biberau in the Odenwald, 1648. They did not reach Prussia until 1720. The prejudice which existed against them, however, 
first gave way under the pressure of the great dearth of 1770 through 72. 1770 is generally considered as the year they were brought to France. This short sketch will have been sufficient to prove that the potato and the typhus have no immediate connection, though of mediate much. In less than a century this vegetable has mightily affected not only agriculture but the whole of social life in Europe. Its comparatively great productiveness renders it possible to maintain a far denser population on a certain extent of ground than could be done by the cultivation of corn alone. The potato has become, so to say, the cornerstone of the existence of the small man in rural districts. The workmen and artisans of small towns even find in it a comparatively abundant source of nourishment. For a long time, therefore, the introduction of the potato appeared to be only a benefit, nay, the probability was canvassed of never more knowing what famine was. But the reverse of this innovation was too sad. We have long been aware that the potato but very insufficiently supplies the body with all the aliment requisite for its growth and maintenance. Excellent as it is taken along with a due proportion of animal food or fatty matter, its value as a main aliment is doubtful, especially for a laboring population who are restricted to the potato and its product, alcohol. It is not enough that such a people's muscular power gradually diminishes, that they become weakened in constitution, and thereby contract an increased disposition to disease, but a single failure of the potato crop, or at most a second, witnesses such a people on the threshold of starvation. That was the case in Flanders and Upper Silesia. That is the case in Ireland and Ostpreußen. Properly speaking, these populations are always standing at the gates of famine. Let distress come, and they are helpless. The so-called practical men then say, The people are accustomed to it. Matters are not so bad, for indeed they have never been otherwise. In Silesia, in 1848, they were even apprehensive the people should be spoiled by giving them flour. And if they got none, why they had to starve. What an alternative! It is indeed so bad with these people that every intelligent and practical man should make it his task to persuade them to grow something else besides potatoes. Such a state of matters must and dare not be given as a reason for not succoring them in times of scarcity or of giving them but lukewarm aid. It ought rather to form a weighty and powerful motive for rendering them assistance and giving them a vigorous lift before distress again overtakes them. Potatoes are doubtless in intimate connection with the state of famine, but we are not prepared to say that either sound or diseased they breed typhus. They have on the contrary done a world of good, for they have been the means of expelling other epidemics which formerly afflicted the people in years of scarcity. I shall confine myself to the mention of the Rafania, ergotism, a sort of disease under which the nervous system suffered greatly, while of typhus symptoms there were none. This affliction was referable to the too abundant use of blighted corn and bread and farinaceous food. Up to 1770 through 72, the years of the Great Famine, 
it here and there made itself disagreeably prominent. Since then it became gradually rarer in proportion as the people have grown more potatoes, and the farmers have bestowed more attention on keeping their fields clean. The causes of scurvy are to be sought for in another set of conditions, as in the defect or too little variety in the aliment and in the want of all vegetable food. It likewise is now almost unknown in Germany, where once with every dearth it too plagued the land. It nevertheless does appear now and again in single or in groups of cases. No longer gone than last summer, among my first cases of spotted fever in the hospital, there was a half-famished man far gone with scurvy. Recovering from this, he was unfortunately infected with spotted fever. The Crimean War furnished us with numerous instances of scurvy as well as of war typhus, especially among the fleet, when the difficulty of procuring fresh food naturally increased the disposition to such diseases. Typhus, however, cannot, like ergotism and scurvy, be referred back to certain properties in the food or deficiencies in the means of nourishment. It has rather invariably been the prevalent custom to believe that several coexisting conditions and the cooperation of several noxious principles, Schädlichkeiten, are indispensable in order to produce what is termed cause of typhus. Under the head noxious principle, we class one, want, bad food, two, overcrowding, three, effluvia exhaled from excrementitial matter. The latest English writers have recently begun to attempt and disentanglement of those noxious principles or elements. Murchison, in particular, has not scrupled to make each of them bear on one of the three forms of typhus. He derives relapsing fever from scarcity, spotted fever from overcrowding, and enteric from filth, that from the common sewer. This division has something to recommend it, in as far as it brings a desirable simplicity and clearness into our views, and affords the memory convenient holds. Just for that reason, however, it must be accepted all the more cautiously, for in my opinion it is only partially correct. Beginning with scarcity, I say, I do not consider it sufficient in itself to produce one of those phases of typhus. The history of human suffering has noted many a famine year unaccompanied by typhus. I have already repeatedly alluded to the great famine of Bengal in 1770, after Kennedy, the dearth in Ireland from 1725 through 27 was not marked by fever. In February of 1852, I was dispatched by the Bavarian government on a mission to the Spessart, where great distress prevailed, but nowhere did I meet with the typhus fever. It may perhaps be of some interest to give a few short quotations from my then report. Already had the years 1846 and 1847 brought bad grain harvests and a consequent dearth in the Spessart, though potatoes and fruits had turned out tolerably, while the cold, damp weather of 1851 brought on a regular famine. The failure of the potatoes was so complete that in many places it was not considered worth the while to lift them, and the continuous rains rendered it impossible for many to lead in the corn which, moreover, was barely ripe. The hail had already damaged a part, as did the autumnal rains the hay, the only thing they had to fall back on for the maintenance of their already reduced number of cattle. 
The pigs, the main resource of the Spessartes and their chief source of income, had to be sold without delay as the potato did not even promise sustenance for man. By the time I reached the highlands, things were looking very bad indeed. The scarcity had reduced the means of livelihood at all times spare and scant to the very meagerest dimensions. Butcher's meat at no time a general fare was almost not to be seen. Butter was rare and milk equally so. The fewest could bake bread from their own stores, for even the buckwheat was used up. Some had nothing but flour, of which they prepared a soup devoid both of strength and flavor. Others had still peas, lentils, or beans, the best fare under such circumstances, but they had been cultivated so sparingly that they rather formed an exception than otherwise. Many used dried and moldy barley, or in default of that, withered turnips minced up, of which a coffee-like decoction was prepared and drunk, the grounds being then saved up for their midday meal. Luckily the potatoes, which had been lifted, diseased, did not go further in the cellar. But in many places they were only half-grown, extremely small and watery. Many searched the field painfully for the roots forgotten in harvest or left there on purpose. Comparatively abundant and therefore much used was cabbage, sauerkraut, and turnips. The distress had certainly nowhere reached such a pitch as to cause deaths by starvation, but it must be confessed that the above description betokens a scarcity such as has not been exceeded in many wars notorious for typhus epidemics, a scarcity which by its duration and extent had well produced typhus if starvation alone could do it. What we met with amongst the people was, however, not typhus, but a peculiar condition of exhaustion, weakness, heaviness, and torpidity of the brain, mostly devoid of all feverish excitability. This I termed the famine state, status famelicus. A number of the cases reminded of a mild form of typhus, but nowhere had contagion been proved. The result appears to have justified me in my conclusions of its not being typhus. The establishment of soup kitchens, the distribution of bread, rice, and food of all kind, removed the symptoms wherever they appeared. I lay all the more stress on those observations of mine, as the very same part of the country had on a former occasion been desolated by the war typhus or camp fever. When in the March of 1813, a French military division had been collected about Aschaffenburg, having brought the spotted fever with them from Poland, a mild form of epidemic was detected. After the battles of the summer and autumn, Leutzen and Leipzig, the war hospitals became more and more filled with such cases, and now spotted fever spread over many of the localities of the Spessart. A few straggling cases occurred, even as late as 1816 and 17, as a sort of winding up. To all appearances, the strongest proofs of typhus being an effect of starvation alone are the experiences of the Scotch doctors of the influence of a crisis in trade on the spread of the spotted fever. So it was that after the great commercial crisis in 1842, a sixth of the poor throughout all Scotland was seized with fever, the middle and higher classes being exempt. In two months there were more cases of typhus than in the previous twelve years. In Glasgow in 1843, 32,000 fell sick, or 12% of the population, of which 32% died. 
it must be premised that between 1838 and 41 the price of corn had risen greatly, that in 1841 the crops had failed, but the harvest of 1842 had been excellent. Here, then, we have a case where, with a good harvest and no scarcity of provisions, the typhus breaks out and spreads. It is rather to be ascribed to a shortness of money preventing the poor procuring themselves proper nourishment. What besides marked this period was an unprecedented increase of crime. We draw from this that so close a connection does not subsist between dearth and disease as might perhaps be presumed from the usual course of things. How distress, how want arises, is no solution. The question is that it does arise. Murchison says, a careful study of the epidemies of spotted fever demonstrates a close connection between the same and periods of distress and famine. They appear in every climate, in all seasons, and in all weathers. End of section 3